Welcome to Dr. Michelle's Wild Warrior Podcast, the official podcast for all things body, brain, and soul. Dr. Michelle is a naturopathic physician, licensed acupuncturist, martial artist, yoga teacher, and aims to model optimal health. And now, here's Dr. Michelle. Welcome, Dr. Nye. Thank you so much for being here on my podcast today. And uh, I'd love for you to just give us a little background on on you and your training and all of that. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I'm psyched to, psyched to talk today. Um, let's see, a little background. Uh, well, I'm in Portland, Oregon. I work at Immersion Health. Um, let's see, I've been in the biz for 18 years now, kind of crazy. Um, my clinical work is predominant, you know, I'm about 70% cancer patients probably. Um, but then I also do a lot of work with everything else, a lot of gut stuff, you know, sulfur metabolism is kind of a thing that I focus on. And so that touches on everything. So I'm dealing with guts and skin and anxiety and all the things that can go with sulfur issues and, and also mold and lime and, you know, all that naturopathic stuff. The, the chronic infections and disease. Chronic infections, yeah. We do a lot of pretty intensive IV therapy and other kinds of, a lot of different kinds of therapies in the clinic that we're doing. So, you know, pretty intensive detox and ozone, saunas and IV ozone and all kinds of things. Many modalities, it sounds like. Yeah, there's, yeah it's fun. It's a lot yeah. of big toolbox. Right. Um, I, and I saw that you just published a book, right? I did. Yeah. I published a book. It is called uh, The Devil in the Garlic. Mm -hmm. And it's all about sulfur and sulfur metabolism and uh, how sulfur, dietary sulfur, um, ultimately it needs to go down some specific pathways in order to do what it needs to do in the body. And it just so happens that um, there are a lot of reasons those pathways don't get followed the way they need to. And when they don't, then our body goes into this compensation mode. Um, and it's that compensation that the body does that causes all kinds of symptoms, whether it's inflammatory bowel disease or joint pain or fatigue or brain fog, all kinds of things that happen because of that. And so, yeah, the book is all about what's up with sulfur and um, what it's supposed to do and why it can get messed up and then how to get it working again. Great. Yeah, it's actually on my agenda to get it ordered today because I'm really curious to read it. Oh, awesome. Yeah. So, um, and then you've also been just, uh, you know, talking a lot about COVID and and some of the situations we've been seeing over the last several months. Um, I, I, for one, have been really proud of our profession. Um, I always am, but I just really have seen a lot of people shining in the light of this disease process and, um you know, so I'd love to for to get your opinion on just how things have gone, and you know, sure, I yeah, loaded question, but <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty big topic. Yes, it is. Um, well, yes. Yeah, so, um, you know, medicine's a funny thing. You know, um, there are it's such a um, it is both a medical process and it is a social phenomenon. And so, you know, actually, just to wind back to give a little bit bigger scope to this discussion, my in my when I did a graduate a master's program uh, prior to starting my naturopathic schooling, uh, 
my field of study was the politics of the medical industry, specifically around AIDS, HIV and AIDS, and how that was both a medical phenomenon and it was this social construction around what that disease is and how it was to be managed and how it was identified and all that. And so I've, I've always had this pretty keen interest in kind of how our concept of disease is used in often uh, socially manipulative ways. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay. So I have that, that's my, I have that background and I've always had that kind of interest. And then we come into this phenomenon of COVID and which is both a physical thing happening in, in a set of people. And then there is this enormous, complex, dense layer of kind of uh, social um, discourse that lays on top of that physical thing. And it has to do with, has to do with how we're testing for it and, and the technology technologies around testing, how we're defining it, what it means to be a case or, um, and then there's this whole layer of it, it has now motivated the most, the most draconian social um, control right. that a disease has ever done. Ever. You know, to yeah. actually lock down a country is unprecedented, of course. I'm not the first to say that. Um, but that only works. You can only pull that off if you have previously established a narrative around that disease that merits that. And then there's always this question, does that narrative actually justify what has been done? Right. Um, and anyway, it's all very complicated. And I certainly don't claim to be the guy that fully understands everything that's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have been very intrigued by digging really deep into various aspects around testing or around epidemiology or um, and even the the various aspects of the physiology of what's happening and and when you when you dig in like that and you get away from kind of that level of social discourse around things and get at what's underneath it uh it's i find it very enlightening and you start to see this very tenuous relationship between what's being said at the public level and the kinds of policies that are going to put in place at the public level and what's behind them as they're as their motivation or justifications. Mm-hmm. And then there's this whole other thing that is crazy about what's happening with vaccine development. Right. Um, you can only justify what's going on with that vaccine development if you have instilled in just an enormous amount of fear in people about this disease. Because without that level of fear, no one would ever accept the kind of uh, ignoring of safety standards that are now happening around this current vaccine. I mean, it's just this crazy stuff. Yeah, for sure. Um, Again, another unprecedented thing that we've never seen before. Yeah. Uh And that's scary in and of itself. Yes, it is. Mm -hmm. It is. Two states now have, um, you know, they are Colorado and New York are both trying to pass mandatory vaccine laws. Right. So vaccination laws. Right. Um, And that's, you know, that'll be a domino effect and it'll ripple across the country. And those of us who are trying to call question into this very particular vaccine and why it's just 
crazy making that we would even think about injecting this into people. Um, those of us who are trying to talk about that from a, a rational scientific point of view right. will be called, you know, we just got called anti-vaxxers and that's all that needs to be said. Totally. Yeah. I mean, it's like, there's no um, capability to even have the discussion. And I feel yeah. like we're seeing, we're seeing data sometimes and, and sometimes it's skewed. We're seeing dogma and we're seeing rhetoric and, and none of those are, well, some of those are in the benefit of the human, um, you know, species, but I don't necessarily think that we're seeing clear data in some situations either. So it's, it's very difficult to, to piece it out. Like as a scientist, as a medical provider, you know, patients for our communities. Yeah, it's very true. It's, um, it's, it's, you know, it's like the, any position that one wants to take on this has its pool of data that will justify that position. For sure. And it really is, um, it's tedious. It's enormously time consuming to dive into those pools of data to say which one seems the most plausible, which one is, is weaving the most coherent narrative around what's happening here. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's just a, it's, I mean, and I'm, of course, I haven't tackled, I've only looked at a fraction of the right. studies that are now it's out a there. It's job if you do. You you know, know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So much information and it changes so, so readily too. Um, what do you, I'm really curious to get your take on kind of some of the information that we're starting to see about kids, um, you know, in the decision-making about that. I mean, I even saw, I guess it was Dr. Osterholm who was interviewed on Joe Rogan, like before everything locked down. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't, I don't know if I totally agree with everything he has to say, but he definitely was kind of adamant that we should not shut down schools and that it needed to kind of run the population of kids. Um, of course, there's always so much extra fear with, around children uh, as a parent of three. I mean, that's important to me to keep my kids safe. Yeah. But I just feel like the ramifications that we've seen in these last few months in the health and well-being of our children is um, devastating, to be frank, compared to, you know, the risk that is very minimal to them. Yeah. Yeah, it is. um, Yeah, it's another. I just find it so, so odd what we are doing. Um, There's kind of this uh, this there's this idea has come about that we can't let our kids get sick. Mm -hmm. And as parents, of course, we don't want our kids to get sick. COVID is not an issue for kids. I mean, it it is not an issue. And a a study just came out. um, The headline said that kids get sick with COVID only half the time. If you read the article, they actually, actually become symptomatic less than a third of the time. Mm-hmm. It's not half the time. It's less than a third of the time. 21% versus um, 69% for somebody over 70. Mm-hmm. That will, the probability of becoming symptomatic. Now, right. kids, um, even when they're symptomatic, they it is extremely rare that they become hospitalized and essentially never that they end up dying unless they, you know, of course, there are those kids that have comorbidities and it's a bigger deal. Um, but that's been true of, you know, wow. influenza and whatever. Yeah. Um, but 
But what happened is that, so you can't really justify shutting down schools because it's a risk to the kids. But what is happening in this particular narrative is that the kids are a risk to the adults. Huh. They, they become a risk to the elderly. Right. Um, and uh, so one thing about that is that there is very little evidence that kids transmit this to adults. Um now, the exception is if you have kids in uh, in family units, it can happen. You can, in fact, the main mode of transmission is in family units. Right. And so, you know, an argument has been made that the last thing we need to do is have kids put in confined spaces with their with older right. parents. Right. Um, For many reasons, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Um but in this language of, oh, we have to protect the elderly so we can't let kids, you know, associate with each other in school right. is talk about throwing out the baby with the bathwater. It's just it's like it is um, it's really I mean, I just had written something recently about that. It, it is dismantling the very essence of childhood. That's yeah. what we have done. Um, not allowing kids to associate with each other, to touch each other, to, I mean, it's its just crazy to me what we're willing to do out of fear of this other process that could happen. Right. Rather than focusing on, on actually getting the nutrient status of our elderly up to par so that their risk is dramatically reduced. Right. Simple, we are, too. It's so simple. It, it, it really is. It is amazing. Um, and it's amazing what you can get by with if you crank up the fear enough. And I, I, I understand. I don't have comorbidities. I'm not in a, I'm not really in a risk group. I mean, I'm over 50, so I'm in that risk group. But other than that, I'm not like, I don't have the kinds of diseases that put me at risk. And so eh, it's easy for me to say. Sure that we shouldn't be doing it. Um, but we're talking about this disease in a very different way than we, than we talk about any other, um, any other disease. I mean, influenza, of course, is the typical reference point that we go to, which it may not have, it doesn't have the same case fatality rate in all across the board. Um, right. but in, in severe seasons, it has rivaled, the the case fatality rate of some populations with COVID. Mm -hmm. But we never talked about shutting things down. We never talked about keeping kids away from their grandparents because of influenza. Right. That's not that's not part of the language. Even when SARS was going around, like I don't recall any of that being said. No. Mm -hmm. Um and so there's it's just a, an entirely new kind of way that we're even that we're not just considering, we're actually implementing. Right. I mean, now there are these just ridiculous pictures of restaurants that are having people sit in these plastic cones, mm -hmm. which like two people sitting across from each other inside of a plastic cone. It's they not. just walked in together. Right. They just came into the restaurant together and now we put them in a plastic cone. Yeah. That doesn't make any sense at all. No, it doesn't. Anyway, I'm rambling, but it's all just, it's craziness. And what I think it is, 
Um, even though the the curve of this epidemic is doing what all epidemics do, which is that it rose and it was up and now it's dropping off. Mm-hmm. And um, as viruses move through a population, they attenuate. That's the nature of a virus. It loses wow. its potency over time. And I mean, this a lot of people are this is not just me saying this. So lots of people who are pointing this out. Um, but the only way that a vaccine is going to be justified on a wide scale is if the the threat of this disease is maintained above some sort of threshold that will be enough to motivate people to get a really scary vaccine. Mm-hmm. Anyway, just rambling. No, and that's the driving force. I think, um, you know, I just see my patients are expressing a lot of fear and anxiety. And um, I mean, luckily, they know that they have a lot of tools in their toolboxes because they see, you know, a naturopath. But um, I just the implications on our society are just so huge. I mean, we're seeing it on a global level now. And uh, I, I definitely think it's associated with, you know, some of the social changes that we're pushing because people have just been stifled and, um, yeah. and felt helpless, you know? And so everybody's just reaching for something that's important to change for sure. And, um, but I just, I think the implications on our society are not even going to be understood for years because it's going to be such huge fallout for years, you know? So we want to be able to get objective about it for like 10 years down the line if we're all still around. Yeah, Um, I agree. Yeah. I I don't mean that like we're going to die from COVID, by the way. (laughs) I think I wasn't wasn't picking that up. I didn't, but I'm seeing for the (laughs) I think, you know, the things, I mean, I listened to Jane Goodall the other day. I mean, she's like the fallout of this disease is an awakening. We need to pay attention to what the earth and the animals and our relationship with our biosphere here is um, begging us to do. Like we have to change some things. Um, Yeah. And I am so, you know, I hope it happens. (laughs) I really, I mean, it does. It's like, um, I hope that there is enough awareness around these issues that it motivates a a desire to change Mm -hmm. um that there's even a recognition that there is a need to change because it's so easy to think that this is just another virus that is coming after us and have that thought about it divorced from the context that this is all happening Mm -hmm. and you know, there's sort of this narrative that viruses are getting more deadly. And so, oh, no, our drugs aren't working anymore. And uh, we've got to have faster vaccine development because these viruses are just going to now they're going to keep coming at us. Right. And of course, nobody at a national level is saying, hmm, I wonder why we might become more susceptible to the viruses. Right. Like that's not a conversation anybody is having at the national level, at a public health level. Um, and my my impression is that it's not a, it's not really a widely understood question that should be asked. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, as naturopaths, that's our role, trying to get people asking that question, to try to get them to understand that that's an important question to be asking. 
Um, But it's such an uphill fight against the dominant narrative around all of this that, well, these virus, you know, they just jump from animals and we have no protection and, you know, our body's never seen it before. So all we can do is make a vaccination. And everybody to stay home. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, So anyway, yeah, it's interesting times. Well, I love the fact that, you know, so much of our philosophy has always been about the terrain of the body and like, what can we do to benefit that? And I think also what we're seeing socially is people don't want to take ownership. You know, I, we've seen this decline in our population's health for, you know, 30 years or something really since sugar came on board and glyphosate, all the other things that have been happening in the last um, 30 years of the agribusiness or 40 And I think people just kind of want to surrender. I mean, I kind of laugh that it's like the Wally video, you know, or movie. I don't know if you remember that where they're all sitting in recliners and fat and silly. It's a cartoon, but you know, they're just like made to be lazy and just sit there and, and not think for themselves. And I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to, you know, shame body types. I didn't mean like that, but I just think that people feel like their health is up to others. And I don't understand that concept when we really need to take ownership of our own health. Yeah. I think, you know, I think it's, um, any given person that you ask uh, from any walk of life, any, you know, whatever ideology or belief system, Mm-hmm. If you were to ask them, do you think that you think for yourself that everybody would say yes? Of course. Everybody, everybody feels that they are kind of assessing the information and making decisions around that mm-hmm. in the best way. And that, um, like, that's the part that is so challenging to overcome because, because the flow of information around all of these things is so tightly controlled. Mm -hmm. And even, you know, even, um, you know, there's this idea now that you can't trust anything in the media and don't get me wrong. I'm a huge critic of mainstream media, Mm -hmm. but there's such a thing as journalism versus opinionating. And, and, um, you know, this, the same people who are saying you can't trust anything in the media are watching the media all the time. That's where, that's where the, that's where they get their narrative from. That's why they're wearing masks and social distancing, because that's, that's the media narrative. Yeah. Now, of course, there are people who are, you know, there are other now with the internet, of course, we have access to information outside of the mainstream. And then that becomes a very, treacherous area because there are those legitimate voices that are not allowed into the mainstream. Mm -hmm. And then there are what I consider having done enormous amounts of just fact checking on claims that people make. Um, There's just an enormous amount of complete crap that's in circulation around various claims, um, political or health claims or whatever that if you actually fact check them, if you spend the time and you fact check, and it takes time, it's, it's, it takes effort to fact check. Um, but if you take the time, you actually can sift out, oh yeah, that's actually, they took a little piece of data and they made a claim that doesn't fit. Right. Or there's actually, there's no evidence at all for that one. That's completely bunk. And then, oh, this one, actually that's 
totally based on a legitimate study that was published over here and the study design was very good. And, you know, and so it's, it's just, that's a tedious process to do. Um, but I don't know how else to get at, at some sense of what's actually true. And there is such a thing as true, true things. Like that notion of alternative facts is like absurd. There are not alternative facts. There are just things that are you can validate and things that you can't validate. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, it's um, it's a very tough. It's a tough thing to uh, to to be confronted with this problem that people. You have to convince somebody first that they're not making decisions uh, with a complete set of data. And and that's not easy to do because everybody believes in the set of data that they have used to make their decision. Right. And so it's this, you know, calling into question of, you know, it's just constantly trying to call into question you know, whatever, some of those underlying assumptions that people are basing decisions on. Yes. I do feel like too, it's hard to, um, so many people have wrapped up in this whole, you know, COVID experience, pandemic experience, like this value system that they tie to whatever they've chosen to believe about it. And, and so it's so inflammatory to have some of the discussions, you know, that, uh, I think are really necessary to have and that we wouldn't see that inflammation in other conversations, but for whatever reason, this one seems to be really tied to people's dogma about, you know, what they believe. And it's, it's become politicized. Obviously we've all seen that. And it's like, you know, I wrote a little thing on Facebook about masks and, you know, just how like probably you shouldn't shame people that choose not to wear them because maybe they've done a little research too. And um, it might not be that they're going to wear a political hat because of, you know, their their mask. They might've actually researched the data. Um, Yeah. That stuff is hard to, to even get through sometimes. And so uh, I don't even know where to totally begin with it, you know, with the conversation. Yeah, that's, it is. um, It's, so, I mean, politically, I don't, I have no problem with being out there with the fact that I've been like way left in my politics, left of the Democratic Party. I mean, I'm, you know, I would call myself progressive, but even that now I'm not even sure. But, but that's just my personal thing because I used to study a lot about politics, but, um, the thing is now, um, and where this is now becoming woven into the political systems is that, um, I mean, I have been, I just find it tragic what the Democratic Party is now trying to put through in terms of contact tracing mm-hmm. and um mandatory vaccinations, which are completely, those votes are absolutely down party lines, all Democrats for, all Republicans against. Um, There are now, there's a law now that's been, you know, it's gotten onto the floor of the House. um, That is, it's, it, 
is allocating $100 billion this year alone to developing a system for contact tracing, this army of people across the country. So your neighbors will be part of this contact tracing thing. And there will be people going door to door asking questions about symptoms that people have. And it's written into the bill that they can forcibly remove people with symptoms from the home and quarantine them. Wow. It's just crazy. It's, and so this is where we're going with this. This is medical authoritarianism. That's what it is. And this is what the Democrats now are pushing under this guise of we're protecting the public, which is like the Achilles heel of Democrats, because they're always about, oh, let's help, you know, yeah. let's protect the public. Mm-hmm. And so they think that's what they're doing with this, but only because the narrative around this disease has become so overwhelming and convincing that we're all on the verge of dying of COVID. Mm-hmm. That is the only way you can justify literal authoritarianism with a medical justification. I mean, it's just unfathomable to me. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that is like, it is crazy. I mean, it's just craziness. And that's now this disease is a social, now it is a social and political phenomenon. These institutions are being, this whole new uh, governmental body is going to be created that will administer this gargantuan contact tracing. And built into it is going to be, you know, now Apple and Google are both building into their operating systems on their phone. You can't delete it. It's not an app that you download. It will be inherent on your phone that it will do contact tracing. Everywhere you go, it's going to monitor who is around you within Bluetooth range. And if you ever have symptoms, it will then know everybody that you've been in touch with and will be able to notify. I mean, this stuff is unbelievable. Just go out the window with that. I mean, (laughs) you know, do we lose all medical privacy, essentially? under, Under this guise that we're all at risk uh-huh. we'll give up people give up freedom if you make them feel insecure right and so yeah that's that's what happened and what do you think the real risk is i know that's a big question too <laughs> uh, of you mean of this disease uh, yeah of all of it i mean you know of the disease itself let's start there start there um the risk groups for this disease are extremely well defined I mean, it's very, very clear who the risk groups are. Um, And so, of course, we know that um, especially people over 80, but certainly even over 70, the largest majority of the people who have become ill with this disease fall in that age group. Mm -hmm. Beyond that age group, there are some other risks that will, we know, increase the risk of this disease by anywhere from two to 10 times. And we're talking about heart disease, diabetes, cancer, hypertension. Um, Smoking is a significant risk. Vaping included in that. Um, And then, so those are the the morbidities that add, you know, that create this other layer of risk group. And by the way, just to point it out, essentially every risk group that I just named is in high concentration on Native American reservations, which are now being hit incredibly hard. My understanding is that, which to no surprise, I mean, 
where is there any more diabetes and hypertension and right. heart disease and obesity and these things that we know dramatically increase risk? It's all concentrated there. Um, tragically, I mean, the, that's a whole other layer of tragedy that um, is here. So, so we have these well-defined risk groups that are exposed. And then there is uh, this other layer of risk that comes in that lays on top in terms of um, kind of epidemiology in terms, not, well, in terms of uh, geography is a better way of saying it. Mm-hmm. So um, for instance, now we know that, that PM 2.5, so the particles in air, the concentration of these air pollution uh, dramatically increases the risk of severe COVID disease. And the cities that have the highest level of those are the places where the people are getting the most COVID. Um, So there is that as an environmental risk factor. Um, Stephanie Seneff, uh, actually, uh, she and I are kind of working. She's doing, of course, she's doing most of this, but we're kind of in this uh, thing putting together uh, the relationship between glyphosate exposure, which, you know, she's the dude on that, and and the occurrence of COVID and how it ties in very mechanistically with the pathology that we're seeing in COVID. And glyphosate actually comes in in two ways. Not only is it, of course, part of our ambient exposure, but now biofuel, which includes both biodiesel, every state now, pretty much every state, requires five to 10% biodiesel, meaning vegetable oil as part of their diesel fuel. And that's true not only in automotive, but also in home heating oil has to be biofuel in several states, mm-hmm. Seattle, um, Washington, I mean, Seattle, New York, um, in LA, the airport at LA was the first one in the country to require um, a certain biofuel within the airplanes there. Um the reason that's important is because the crops that are used to make those oils are heavily sprayed with glyphosate. Right. Um, and so when you combust that inefficiently, like happens in any kind of burning, right. then you're going to aerosolize glyphosate. And there are studies on what happens when you expose mice to ambient levels of aerosolized glyphosate. It causes this, this in, intense inflammatory reaction in the lungs. Um, so anyway, that's just another, another layer of risk that falls on top of the population. And so there are going to be certain geographies that will be at higher risk. And then we have this whole other layer of nutritional issues. Right. And, you know, we know now that low vitamin D is 25 times greater risk of, of severe COVID 25 times. And the serum. The serum level that they use in this test was so trivial, 23.7. That was the level that if you could be above 23.7, your risk goes down dramatically. Kind of deficiency on some labs, even like under 30, you know. Uh, totally. So having just minimal amounts of vitamin D can dramatically reduce the risk. If we reduce the risk of this disease by 25 times, nobody would be talking about COVID right now. We would not be talking about vaccines. We would not be talking about social distancing or masks. None of that. It would all go away if we reduced the risk by 25 times. So not only that, but there are other studies that show, for instance, in China, they did this study showing that the regions with the 
lowest amount of selenium in the soil mm-hmm. had, uh, it was like eight to 10 times higher risk of severe COVID. Wow. Another intervention study where they gave everybody there in the hospital, they gave them a low dose of vitamin D, magnesium, and B12. And they reduced the risk of those people then going on to severe disease by 75%. That's I mean, the basic things. And the, what they gave these people. So everybody who showed up at the hospital in a series of, I think it was 40 or 70 patients, everyone, they gave them the same thing. 1,000 IU of vitamin D, five, uh, 150 milligrams of magnesium, and 500 micrograms of B12. Trivial doses. Trivial doses. Yeah. 75% reduction in severe disease. Wow. It is just crazy that this is not just standard practice around the country, that well, our public health authorities are not getting on in front of microphones and saying, oh my gosh, people, you wouldn't believe what we found out, but let me tell you what you need to do. Right. Well, in fact, I feel like people are getting censored for even bringing that stuff up, even when you're quoting you know, good data. It's like, you know, if, yeah. you, if you dare oh, no. immune stimulating, then, you know, you might be red flagged. And I, it's unbelievable to me because it's just basically, it really you know, and yeah. if this, that's the answer and we decrease it by those percentages. That's unbelievable. And, and it's just simple. Um, it's, I mean, it, I didn't even mention, uh, I think a great case can be made for melatonin as a uh, an important protectant and but I would guess also uh, treatment though we don't know right. and certainly glutathione right um, both of those you know yeah I mean it's been theorized that the melatonin is the reason the kids don't get as affected right yeah that um, and of course you know that's uh, a lot of correlation because kids have a whole lot of melatonin and it falls as we age. Um, and there's, but there's also, uh, there's also a legitimate kind of physiology of melatonin. There was an article just published, um, Doris Lowe, I think her name is, um, who has been doing all the research on this, but she actually, um, just got an article published on it, which I haven't read yet, but I'm certainly looking forward to because she apparently ties it all together there. So very cool. That's great. Yeah. Um, and then just another, like, one thing you brought up was the social distancing and mask wearing and, and how, and you were just kind of, you know, posing the question, I think, on one of your posts, but about how we've seen, and I did a little research on this, like we've seen a really high influenza year this year. I, what I read was that it's the highest since the H1N1 year. And then, you know, second highest since we started keeping uh, track of it. Yeah. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong on that, but I'm pretty sure that was on the CDC site. Uh, and that we've seen a really high incidence in kids this year, which I find rather interesting since, you know, a big chunk of this year or the spring, at least, they were kept home and supposedly doing these things that would protect them from, you know, a, a yeah. illness like that, right? And yeah. I just find that so eyebrow raising. <laughs> yeah, I would say interesting in the sense that it doesn't make any sense at all. Exactly. That's what I mean. Like, like, it makes no sense. That there would be this contagious disease that is happening at the same rate as it always has, and maybe even more mm-hmm. when we have done a more draconian lockdown than this country's ever done. It doesn't make any sense at all. Like it just makes no sense at all. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, when you see those graphs about, and, you know, like when in the curve of this thing, when social distancing came in and when masks came in, and you see that in the context of the curve, I it, I mean, I know other people interpret this different than I do, but it, I do not see how you can possibly conclude that those measures have had any appreciable impact on, on the curve of this epidemic. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't, it doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, essentially, the, the level of infection peaked before any of those things came into place. And the so populations and all that too were way higher than right. The what were the hospitalizations and the morbidity oh, were what much? Yeah, it all like it's like um, you know when your infection, the amount of infection peaks, and then you're going to have the lag time before you're going to see people start to get sick and end up in the hospital and maybe some of them die. And so if you if your peak on infection has already happened and now the rate the level of infection is starting to come down and then you implement social distancing it's exactly what we saw happen like once everything was on lockdown things kept going up Mm -hmm. which that's weird um but that's just to say that there's that lag time before people actually start getting sick right um so yeah it's um one of the other frustrating things for me in this whole concept of like, um, you know, keeping things forever locked down or whatever we might end up doing in the, the situation with kids in the fall um, is that, you know, we, the, the intent of these draconian, as you say, uh, implementations on our society we're never to stop the virus from spreading. I mean, the curves that we saw in the beginning from the higher ups were like, here's the curve. We need to flatten it. So look, it's going to get longer and broader and there's still going to be about the same number of cases. But I feel like now the, the public for whatever reason has kind of latched onto this idea of, Oh my God, there's more cases and and it's never ending. And the second wave and all these, you know, words that come out to create the panic. And it's like, it's a virus. It's going to circulate and, you know, no loss of life is, is um, wanted obviously. And it's all uh, devastating when people die and get sick, but you know, we were never intending with the social distancing to stop it from spreading. It needs to circulate through the population and attenuate, like you said. Yeah. That's a super important point that is very intentionally obscured now. I mean, the the dialogue in this country has completely shifted. And it used to be that we had a very specific point behind public policy, and that was to flatten the curve. Right. And that was the metaphor we all knew. Of course, nobody talks about flattening a curve anymore. There's absolutely no discussion of that. The point seems to be now that we can't allow anyone to die of this disease, mm-hmm. which is an absurdity. But it's the only way to to... It's only by holding on to that as the objective that we can maintain a level of panic around this. And the fact is to use the word cases is now meaningless. It is totally meaningless because we know, because they publish this, that the CDC includes a case is someone who not only tests positive by PCR, Mm -hmm. which 
has its problems. But they also are including people who test positive by antibody, which is, that's an absurdity. That is absolute absurdity. Nobody in their right mind could have made that decision thinking that this will help to clarify things. Nobody. Right. That was an intentional thing to inflate the number of cases because we all see the, the graphs of cumulative cases, mm-hmm. which is, again, a meaningless graph because cumulative is always going to grow. The point is rate of change. And cases, especially if a significant portion of people who are testing positive are not even becoming ill in any way, um, it's not really a meaningful term. All we really care about are how many are ending up in the hospital and how many of those are dying. That's giving us a real picture of how severe this disease is. Mm-hmm. When you look at those issues, not cases, not testing things, when you look at who's actually in a hospital and then who dies, it is continuing to be level, even in those places that are, you know, like Arizona that is now opened up. Yes, they have had an uptick. They calling it, they're calling it a spike. It's not a spike. You can look at the data. It is not a spike. It is more people in the hospital and dying. Of course, everybody knew it was going to happen. And now they're talking about it like, oh my gosh, it's time you know, what are we going to do? Right. I mean, I like to channel Dr. Colley. Did you have him as a professor? <laughs> he, was, he, was, uh, he was always like talking about getting on the morbidity and mortality rate, you know, on the CDC. He was- Oh, like, yeah epidemiologist guys and you know oh yeah yeah i don't think i had him new orleans and just a great edgy person but yeah uh, very informed and he was always like i look at the morbidity and mortality rate every day and we all thought that was weird but you know it's (laughs) and here we are exactly (laughs) Exactly. yeah so um maybe let's segue one more uh, i i just want to bring up the vaccine research one more time um just yeah I think that that is something, again, it's so polarized. It's so, uh, it's so hot, that subject, and um, people get very charged around it. But I think that if we were talking about, say, an antibiotic or something, and parents, you know, were worried about their kid who was sick, and we said, well, you know, everybody has to get this antibiotic, parents would be like, well, wait a minute, my kid's allergic or you know, my kid has had bad experiences with those. Sure, yeah. I know it's going to wreck their gut or I know. Um, but we, with the vaccines, for whatever reason, we kind of don't see that unless people are in one camp or another. And um, I'm just curious, like with this vaccine in particular, and it's, you know, what I would consider very um, unsafe practices as far as its data collection and research and being pushed through in such a fast way that we've never seen before. What do they call it? Unprecedented, literally, right? Yeah, Yeah, Um, it is. And so I'd love your take on that and just, you know, just some of the stuff that you're starting to see as far as what the data is showing. Well, um, gosh, so much. So just to make sure we keep the scope of this correct, I, a typical vaccine takes about 20 years to, from concept to market, is about 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and that includes the, you know, the concept, and then it has to be developed in the lab and lots of trial and error at the basic science level. And then you get into animal studies, right. and that usually goes through several rounds. And then you get phase one, then phase two, then phase three trials. And then... You get through all that, and then you might get it to market. Mm-hmm. Enormous amount of time and money 
This, uh, the company that is developing the main vaccine that we're hearing about in the U.S., Moderna, is the company, and they have never brought a vaccine to market in the past, right. never done it. And so they um, they had this unique idea for how we can generate antibodies. Typically, a vaccine, you inject people with stuff and your immune system freaks out and develop antibodies. That's how it does it. With Moderna, uh, they had this other thought, and that is, well, let's inject people with RNA mm -hmm. because ultimately, if you get infected with a virus, the virus gets into cells and it it makes RNA, and the RNA transcribes proteins and yada yada. So Moderna said, why don't we just inject viral RNA? that codes for these specific antigenic proteins, like the spike protein. Right. We inject this RNA, and then we got this proprietary thing we can't tell you about, that um, once we inject the RNA, your cells wouldn't be inclined to take it up, but we got this way that we can make your cells soak up this oh. RNA that we just injected. Uh -huh. so that's proprietary, so we don't know what that is. And then once your cell takes that up, then it starts your cell starts making the spike protein so that you're making the viral protein that, that annoys your immune system. And then cells start uh, expressing this protein, kind of secreting it into circulation. And now your immune system freaks out. So it is your own cells now that are making the protein. You don't need the virus with this. Mm -hmm. You're actually generating the protein yourself because they modified your DNA. They've, they've, uh, they've essentially inserted uh They've inserted in RNA that will generate the proteins. Never been done before. Uh -huh. So typically, if you have unprecedented vaccine, there's simple vaccines, complex vaccines, and unprecedented. Simple and complex have all been done before. Unprecedented means totally new concept. Mm -hmm. unprecedented, unprecedented vaccine, obviously, for good reason, should go through much more rigorous kinds of safety trials than the other two go through because you have to establish that this new concept is safe. All of that was bypassed. Instead of 20 years to get this one to market, the first human trials. So Moderna has been working on this. Um, the concept really uh, came into the potential to even start in a clinical trial at, or into an animal trial. They skipped that though. Um, at the beginning of this year. Mm -hmm. And so they just went straight into human trials. That started in February. That was a phase one trial. Phase two trial started in May. And now they're already saying phase three trial will start in July. Oh. So this is a process that should be spanning many years yeah. that is happening in months. Mm -hmm. And a study was just published showing that these... So our cells are going to generate these protein. Right. Our body will generate antibodies to it. What do we know about these antibodies that they generate to this protein? Will those antibodies bind anything else in our body? Mm -hmm. Yes. Actually, it binds uh, transglutaminase. So it, those antibodies will, will bind to uh, this enzyme in the gut that is the cause of celiac disease. It binds to... Uh, the TPO enzyme. So 
it can link to Hashimoto's. It binds to myelin basic protein, which is associated with multiple sclerosis. Mm -hmm. So this same antibody that binds to the spike protein binds to these and several other natural proteins that we have in our bodies. So we're talking about giving this injection to children and potentially setting them up for a lifetime of multiple autoimmune diseases. It's just crazy. We will never know if that's going to happen because we're skipping the safety trials. You can't establish that in less than at least several years of watching what happens after you give the give right. the vaccine. Yeah, that's scary stuff for sure. Yeah. I also read um, one of the ones that they were studying in Britain, I think, where they were concerned that the live virus would actually cause more of a response or a detrimental response in those yeah. humans once they had had the trial vaccine. I don't remember the exact study on that, but it was something I had read. Uh, it might have been speculative. I'm not sure. But, you know, I just think yeah. that. And, and what's the volume of people that they're looking at? Do you even know? Because I remember the first phase of only like 40 people or something. And they yeah, 45. There's 15 in the low, the medium, and the high dose. Mm-hmm. So 45 total people are now in going through, um, at least I know they were in the phase, um, 45 people were in phase one. Mm-hmm. Um, and... So oddly enough, when they were, I mean, there were actually some headlines about, oh, this looks very encouraging when the preliminary data was coming out, but they didn't even report on all 45 people. They only reported on, I eight think, eight or something. Yeah. yeah, like eight people that they actually gave details about. And we know that uh, it was either two or three had, um, had reactions that required hospitalization, keeping in mind that they are only testing this on people who were very healthy previously right. and had absolutely no other health conditions. Mm-hmm. So the least likely people to respond in a negative way are the only people that they're testing this on. So it's we have no idea. Controlled, do you know? I mean, I've said it again. The double blind and controlled. Oh, no, 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 there's no. Yeah, they don't have that. Now, what we don't know, I mean, my understanding is that this, this vaccine doesn't have... Um, adjuvants in the way that the other types of vaccine, like the, you know, with um, aluminum and the other things that get your immune system cranked up. This vaccine, as as I am able to read about it, doesn't have that. So it wouldn't need to use those as control, but it does have whatever this proprietary thing is that is causing cells to take up the RNA. Mm-hmm. Whatever that is, it should be the control. Um, but uh, there's no control group. So, you know, that's part of the course. Yes. Okay. Well, let's finish on a light note. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love all this information, you know, I eat this stuff up, but yeah, uh, I think for no, I, yeah. listeners, I'd love to like finish on a hopeful um, note. And so would you just, um, maybe give me a little quick rundown of the things that you think can benefit people the most to kind of get themselves out of the fear and anxiety and and be strong and healthy in this. Yes. So um, let's see. I mean, from a personal health level, I mean, I would say this, what this disease has shown is the tragedy of healthcare in this country, not in the sense that we can't manage patients who are getting COVID. I mean, that we have such prevalence of comorbidities that we have a very 
wide population of susceptible people. Right. The things that we do to to uh, get rid of, to manage and actually get rid of these comorbidities. And by then I'm just talking about heart disease and hypertension and diabetes. And so what do we do to treat those things? Well, you go see a naturopath because that's what our job is. Right. So it's about, it's about, you know, learning appropriate kind of exercise routines and diets that are, that are appropriate for a body type or a lifestyle and, and stress because, Having high stress levels means high cortisol, which means immune suppression, which means all kinds of problems that go with that. Um, the kinds of things that we do, just part of our job, um, if if naturopaths were the primary care doctors prevalent in this country, there would be a whole lot less COVID and any other disease, I think. Um, because these are things that we all have control over. We can all, uh, you know, get vitamin D tested and make sure you supplement up to a healthy level and uh, basic nutrients, you know, that, um, you know, a good multivitamin is a good thing if you're not eating a, a whole food diet. Right. Um, and so maintaining adequate nutrient levels and, um, and organic, like, <laughs> I mean, actually paying attention to not just non-GMO, but organic Mm-hmm. because non-GMO can still have lots of glyphosate put on it. Yeah. Um, it's really organic that, that we should be eating. And that is a very, uh, that's a very meaningful change in our health in the long term. Yeah. So um, yeah, these kinds of things are, are, are what we each have access to that we can do to absolutely modify the risk of COVID of anything else, you know, of, all kinds of illnesses that we might um, confront and we will be faced with, with other situations because that's the nature of the world that is being created. And so, you know, the other thing I would say is that we also give attention to, to opposing, allowing this to happen in our world where we just accept that glyphosate is everywhere and that, you know, um, PM 2.5, yeah, yeah, air pollution is allowed and all these kinds of things. So, um, you know, working in the community to prevent that, but also really um, just being aware that there are things that we can do in our lives that that will dramatically reduce our risk and just let us live happier, you know, just more vitality. Totally. Yeah. And I think too, I've, I've been reading that, that book called Breath. Have you heard of that one? Um, I'm forgetting. It, yeah. right now. Uh-huh. It's pretty new. Yeah. And just looks in the history of, you know, our breathing and the structure of our faces that have changed over the millennia. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, yeah. But I right. find it so, uh, so serendipitous that I'm reading that right now based on what we're seeing, you know, with the, the history of COVID and how it affects the lungs and then everybody wearing masks and yeah, uh, right. stifling of speech that's kind of happening in our culture right now, too. And and the need for people to kind of just take a breath and reconnect and get, and also just being inside all the time. Like, you know, luckily I live in a town, I live in Bend and it's so nice over here. And I just was hitting the oh, yeah. time during lockdown anyway, cause that's what I do. And yeah. I like it was my, it was my mission to stay healthy so that I can be there for my family and my patients, you know, ultimately. Mm-hmm. And just taking a deep breath, you know, nasal breathing outside, like those are so simple. And there's so a simple. Every yeah. simple human being, no matter what your socioeconomic or your race or anything, none of those factors 
matter. We can all get outside and take a breath. So yeah. 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 It's great. mm -hmm. Well, um, I I wish you well in your endeavors and uh, I'm, I'm actually probably coming to the conference that you guys are doing in Atlanta. Oh, nice. Awesome. Well, my family's from there. I grew up there. So it's a good excuse to and see everybody. And it's such a great panel you have. So that's really exciting. Yeah, it looks impressive. That's the Wise Traditions Conference for people that are interested. That's in November, middle of November. Um, Yeah, it looks like a really great lineup. It's going to be great. And I think it's really timely too, just um, all of this, you know. Yeah. That's very exciting. So hopefully I'll see you there in person. And um, Yes, indeed. Yeah. 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 And so if anybody wants to contact you, do you have a forum for that? Or? Oh, yeah. Um, well, yeah. Uh, my The clinic webpage is immersionhealthpdx.com. Okay. So, uh, you know, you can find out all about me and my practice there. Um, yeah. And anybody who wants to follow me on Facebook. I'm constantly posting about all this stuff there. So you can look up my name on Facebook and friend me and great. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time and expertise. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was fun. It was fun. And I appreciate it so much. I hope you have an awesome day out there and that, you know, thank you. Everybody's healthy in your world. Yes, indeed. All righty. Take care. All right. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Dr. Michelle's Wild Warrior Podcast. If you enjoy the show, please like, subscribe, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information on Dr. Michelle, please visit drmichellem.com and follow her on Instagram at ethereal underscore fighter.